Hey, it's Kate. Our colleague, Juliet Chung, who you've heard on our show as a reporter, is hosting today's episode. Here she is. Johnson & Johnson makes a lot of products American consumers are familiar with, from Band-Aids to Tylenol. And for decades, one of its flagship products was its talcum baby powder. Johnson's adds a feeling of softness to the love in your touch. Johnson's, the softest baby powder there is. But Johnson's baby powder wasn't just for babies. The company also marketed it to women. I've got my interview today. Where are my eyelashes? You'll feel a lot cooler if you just use some Johnson's baby powder. Johnson & Johnson pitched baby powder as a mainstay throughout women's lives. You know, the first time I ever used this, no mama when, when you were just a baby. Johnson's baby powder, a feeling you never outgrow. From Johnson & Johnson. But nowadays... Johnson & Johnson's baby powder is associated with something else. News this morning concerning Johnson & Johnson, which has been facing mounting lawsuits from customers who blame their cancer on that company's talcum powder. The company, among one of the most trusted in the United States, now ordered to pay millions of dollars in a case linking baby powder to cancer. Johnson & Johnson has lost yet another multi-million dollar lawsuit which claims an ingredient in its popular baby talcum powder causes cancer. And there are Tens of thousands of women have sued Johnson & Johnson over the last 15 years, claiming its powders gave them cancer. Johnson & Johnson has continually denied that its baby powder causes cancer, saying that allegations lack scientific merit. The lawsuits have cost the company $4.5 billion in recent years, and thousands of lawsuits are still pending. And to try to resolve those lawsuits, Johnson & Johnson is going to bankruptcy court without actually declaring bankruptcy. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Juliette Chung. It's Tuesday, April 11th. Coming up on the show, Johnson & Johnson's baby powder and its controversial gambit in bankruptcy court. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. For most of its existence, Johnson's baby powder was made with talc, a clay mineral. What has been the core allegation that these plaintiffs have made? The core allegation regarding Johnson's baby powder is that it was dangerous to its users through two means, according to plaintiffs who filed lawsuits. That's our colleague, Andrew Scurria. One is that the talc contained microscopic amounts of asbestos, uh, which is a naturally occurring mineral that is sometimes mixed in with the talc, which is mined from the earth 
and then put into baby powder. And there have been allegations over the years that small amounts of asbestos lurked in the bottles even when they made their way to the consumer. And the second allegation is that talc in and of itself is linked to ovarian cancer when it stays in the body longer than it should. How has Johnson & Johnson responded to these allegations? J&J has steadfastly denied that there's any merit to any talc-related injury claim. They deny that there was ever asbestos lurking in the talc. And they also say that epidemiological studies over the past, you know, couple decades have shown that there's not a reliable, valid link between talc and ovarian cancer. Since 2020, Johnson & Johnson has made its baby powder with cornstarch in the U.S. and Canada. And this year the company plans to stop selling baby powder containing talc in the rest of the world. But over the last 15 years, Johnson & Johnson has faced thousands of lawsuits over its baby powder. As of 2021, there were 40,000 filed lawsuits pending against Johnson & Johnson and its subsidiaries. And in reality, the number of claims is probably closer to 100,000, roughly speaking. 100,000 claims seems like a lot. How did we get there? The reason why the claims keep growing is in part because there's been an aggressive marketing campaign by plaintiff's attorneys to encourage former talc users who have developed ovarian cancer, asbestos disease, or other ailments to come forward and make claims against the company. For years, the company fought the lawsuits in court, and it was winning most of those cases. The company had been generally managing its exposure. So it was a problem for Johnson & Johnson, but not an enterprise-threatening, business-threatening litigation. In general, Johnson & Johnson was fighting each case individually. And they can't be brought as a class action because every individual's use of talc, their medical profile, their history, their diagnoses are all very particularized. And that's one reason why it's so hard as a defendant to fight these cases is because they all have to be litigated one by one. But in 2018, Johnson & Johnson lost a big lawsuit. Now, Johnson & Johnson must pay a $2.1 billion award to women who claimed its baby powder was contaminated with cancer-causing asbestos. 22 women had banded together and sued Johnson & Johnson in Missouri over its baby powder. Their lawyers argued that asbestos in the powder had given the woman cancer. Before the end of the trial, six of the plaintiffs had died. Johnson & Johnson denied responsibility, but a jury ruled against it, ultimately costing the company $2 billion in damages. That's just a fraction of its gross profits in 2021, almost $64 billion. The thing is, the company was facing thousands more lawsuits. Well, I think what really stood out to me about that particular case is it was a roughly $2 billion payment for judgment for 22 women. Like, per plaintiff, the damages awarded were very significant. And you start to extrapolate that out, and that's when you sort of gasp a little bit. Now, granted, most cases could be settled for far less, but even an occasional billion-dollar verdict or two, and even for a company Johnson & Johnson size, that can really ruin your year. After one $2 billion verdict and with 40,000 other cases still pending, that sent the company searching for more aggressive ways to resolve it because the problem got a lot worse. So Johnson & Johnson decided to try something new. 
a strategy that had the potential to resolve all of the lawsuits. And the only forum in the American legal system that can offer Johnson & Johnson that kind of finality for its current and future exposure is a bankruptcy court. Bankruptcy court. Filing for bankruptcy offers companies a lot of protection from most civil lawsuits. For starters, if Johnson & Johnson declared bankruptcy, all those tens of thousands of lawsuits would be consolidated into one bankruptcy case. In a bankruptcy court, everything goes through one judge, and that judge has the ability to estimate claims on an aggregate basis, which which Johnson & Johnson says is a more efficient and fair outcome to all concerned. On top of that, going bankrupt would put all ongoing lawsuits on pause. All litigation against it is automatically stayed, and you, you can't sue it, you can't try to collect any money from it without court approval. So it opened up a path to settling the liability. But Andrew says the biggest upside to going bankrupt it's that even future lawsuits are resolved through bankruptcy court. Courts allow companies in bankruptcy to set aside some money for future lawsuits and walk away from those liabilities. There's one person appointed in bankruptcy court called an FCR, a future claimant's representative. And that person's job is to negotiate the best possible deal they can on behalf of people who are not at the table. If Johnson & Johnson declared bankruptcy, it would put the baby powder lawsuits to bed once and for all. The problem is that to declare bankruptcy, companies need to be in financial distress. And Johnson & Johnson isn't they couldn't simply file bankruptcy themselves because for a company Johnson & Johnson's size, that's not really an option. It would be terribly destructive to their equity value and be disruptive to their operations, to their employees. Uh, So there are huge barriers to entry for a company of that size filing Chapter 11. It's just not really something they would do. Johnson & Johnson found a workaround, one that could give it the protections of bankruptcy court without filing for bankruptcy something called the Texas Two-Step. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. To access bankruptcy court, Johnson & Johnson looked to a controversial legal strategy. It's called the Texas Two-Step, which is what it's come to be known as colloquially among plaintiff's attorneys and defense attorneys. It's named after the classic country-western dance. This dance is Texas Two-Step. Now, we're going to try this with the music, see how it goes. The legal move is called the Texas Two-Step because it requires two steps. Step together, walk, walk. Feet together, walk, walk. Feet together, walk, whoa. 
First, the company creates a new subsidiary in Texas and uses a unique Texas law to make that subsidiary responsible for all the company's historic tort liabilities. In other words, the parent company passes on the responsibility of the lawsuits to its new company. Now, next thing we're going to cover is the direction change. Step two, that subsidiary is then placed into Chapter 11, and the Chapter 11 process allows for litigation to be stayed as to the subsidiary and as to the parent. Two steps. Step together, walk, walk. Step together, it works every time. So in 2021, that's just what Johnson & Johnson did. Step one. What it did was create a new subsidiary called LTL Management LLC, which stands for Legacy Talc Litigation Management LLC, uh, in Texas, where it assigned its own talc liabilities to that new company. And then, step two. It filed LTL Management for Chapter 11. And that had the effect of putting all of the talc liabilities now within LTL on hold because that's what happens when a company files for bankruptcy. Johnson & Johnson's goal was to shield itself from all baby powder lawsuits. LTL's only meaningful asset is the financial backing of its parent, Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson agreed to cover all of its costs and cover all of the billions of dollars that it would take to reach a settlement in that Chapter 11 case. And by providing that backstop, the company was able to say to the judge and to the plaintiffs, hey, you're no worse off than you were before because we have agreed to put our financial backing behind this Chapter 11 plan. Why go through the effort of doing the Texas two-step at all? It drives home the risk that Johnson & Johnson was trying to avoid by turning to bankruptcy court, right? Another $2 billion verdict or two would have been unacceptable from the company's perspective. And so it made it worthwhile for them to try this pioneering, cutting-edge, unproven strategy of pushing the litigation into Chapter 11 because the alternative was so bad. So how did the people suing Johnson & Johnson feel about that? Many of the talc claimants were not on board with this. They objected. Some plaintiffs viewed the bankruptcy case as just a breath-holding contest between them and J&J, in which J&J could just hang out in bankruptcy court almost indefinitely and try to negotiate a deal while their lawsuits were stopped from going forward. And some of the women who brought the underlying cases were getting sick and dying. Uh, So there was a legal fight in bankruptcy court about whether this case was filed in good faith and whether it's a proper application of the bankruptcy code for a company like Johnson & Johnson. The move also caught the attention of Congress. Here is Senator Dick Durbin calling out the company on the Senate floor. The Texas Two-Step is a name given to a highly controversial legal strategy that some of the biggest corporations are now using to shield their assets from accountability. It allows massively wealthy corporations whose product caused harm to avoid paying damages to the victims. But the Texas two-step didn't work. Last week, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals decided they didn't want to dance and threw the case out. That's because, according to the appeals court, LTL wasn't actually in financial distress. 
The reason it wasn't financially distressed was because the parent company had agreed to backstop it, stand behind it, and cover its eventual settlement of talc-related liabilities. And they viewed, the appeals court viewed Johnson & Johnson's case that it had kind of manufactured access to the bankruptcy system for a subsidiary that didn't really need it because it had all this backing from the parent company. Courts rejected Johnson & Johnson's two-step gambit, but within hours, the company decided to try again by filing LTL for bankruptcy a second time. But now, the company put something else on the table, at least $8.9 billion. If the plan is approved, it would be the largest product liability settlement ever implemented through a bankruptcy case. And it also ranks as one of the biggest product liability settlements of all time. I mean, $8.9 billion, how should, how should we be thinking about that figure? On the one hand, you know, I flash back to that $2.1 billion settlement for 22 plaintiffs, and it starts to seem maybe not as significant. Is there another way to be thinking about this? As you indicated, it's spread over a huge number of claimants, and there's varying degrees of injury. And some plaintiffs' lawyers say that even the $8.9 billion figure isn't enough because when you get sick with ovarian cancer, it's not just pain and suffering, medical expenses, lost wages. For a lot of claimants, it adds up to about $500,000 that they're asking for. And depending on how you do the math, some plaintiff's attorneys say that claimants could expect to get, the average claimant will get around 100000 based off of that. So it remains to be seen whether enough plaintiff's lawyers will agree to these terms or whether Johnson & Johnson will improve them to get more plaintiffs on board so that enough will vote in favor that it can win court approval. Johnson & Johnson needs 75% of claimants to agree to this plan. The company says it already has the support of law firms representing more than 60,000 of them. But even if Johnson & Johnson does gather enough support for the plan— Bankruptcy courts might not go along with it because the fundamental question over whether Johnson & Johnson's subsidiary belongs in bankruptcy court is still at issue. Johnson & Johnson said in a statement that it continues to firmly believe the proposed resolution is the most efficient and equitable. So what would it mean for Johnson & Johnson if this works? It would mean that the company is able to turn the page on a litigation that's dogged it for more than a decade. And it would send a powerful message to co-defendants that they could do the same. That they can deal with litigation with the Texas two-step? Yes. Whether J&J's strategy succeeds or fails will determine whether the Texas two-step becomes a normal, everyday tool in the toolbox of the lawyers who you know, try to get, get companies out of lawsuits that they're facing. If there is a way that they can move mass litigation into bankruptcy court, that'll be a very attractive option for a lot of corporate defendants. That's all for today, Tuesday, April 11th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode from Peter Loftus. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.